This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter and don't get sick. BunnySlippers.com, they've got those cool, woolly, highland cow slippers that everyone thinks are super cool. They're all shaggy and woolly and gosh darn it, don't they keep your feet warm. Also, found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult movies. Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by them and whoever else our sponsor is and by the folks who listen to it, you. Want to help out the show? Get your name mentioned in the credits? Contact me in social media so I know because uh, I'm really bad at keeping track of this stuff. But uh, paypal.me slash pgttcm pgttcm.com Look for how to shop, be a patron, listen to all the episodes or all the episodes that are available currently, and find out more about the show. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer. Uh, I'm I'm super sick. I've been out of work for a couple of days because I've been so sick. Um, I've been kind of bedridden. I don't have the coronavirus. I know I live in Portland and I take mass transit everywhere. Um, I've been sick for a while and I've just been pushing it too hard and, you know, three podcasts, two jobs and everything else that I've got going on. But anyway, so, um, that doesn't mean I'm going to slow down on podcasts or anything else. I'm just going to try and take it easy and other stuff. So yeah, um, I have my my computer next to me in bed, so I decided to do this because I haven't been able to get into the studio for a bit, but I have this laptop here. So, sorry about the audio quality, and if you say, hey, what audio quality? Well, sorry for the audio quality in general. All right. Uh, remember, you can find the show at any podcatchers that you know and recommend it to your friends if, you know, something to listen to. And, you know, just, just tell them to skip the first three minutes. I always set up the first three minutes for uh, for this part. And then that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales and our monthly show, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Articulate Warbling, Dave's Corner of the Podcast, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and all that kind of fun stuff. Thank you again so much. And uh, this this month is uh, Nikolai uh, Gogol. So enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol, translated by D.J. Hogarth. Introduction by John Kornos. Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol, born at Sorochinsky, Russia, on the 31st of March, 1809, obtained government posts at St. Petersburg, and later an appointment at the university. Lived in Rome from 1836 to 1848. Died on the 21st of February, 1852. Dead Souls, first published in 1842, is the great prose classic of Russia. That amazing institution, the Russian novel, not only began its career with this unfinished masterpiece by Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol, but practically all the Russian masterpieces that have come since have grown out of it, like the limbs of a single tree. 
Dostoevsky goes so far as to bestow this tribute upon an earlier work by the same author, a short story entitled The Cloak. This idea has been wittily expressed by another compatriot who says, We have all issued out of Gogol's cloak. Dead Souls, which bears the word poem upon the title page of the original, has been generally compared to Don Quixote and to the Pickwick Papers, while E. M. Vogue places its author somewhere between Cervantes and Lesage. However considerable the influences of Cervantes and Dickens may have been, the first on the matter of structure, the other in background, humour and detail of characterization, the predominating and distinguishing quality of the work is undeniably something foreign to both and quite peculiar to itself something which, for want of a better term, might be called the quality of the Russian soul. The English reader familiar with the works of Dostoevsky, Turgenev and Tolstoy need hardly be told what this implies. It might be defined in the words of the French critic just named as a tendency to pity. One might indeed go further and say that it implies a certain tolerance of one's characters even though they be, in the conventional sense, knaves, products, as the case might be, of conditions or circumstance, which, after all, is the thing to be criticised and not the man. But pity and tolerance are rare in satire, even clash with it, producing in the result a deep sense of tragic humour. It is this that makes of Dead Souls a unique work, peculiarly Gogolian, peculiarly Russian, and distinct from its author's Spanish and English masters. Still more profound are the contradictions to be seen in the author's personal character, and unfortunately they prevented him from completing his work. The trouble is that he made his art out of life, and when in his final years he carried his struggle, as Tolstoy did later, back into life, he repented of all he had written, and in the frenzy of a wakeful night burned all his manuscripts, including the second part of Dead Souls, only fragments of which were saved. There was yet a third part to be written. Indeed, the second part had been written and burned twice. Accounts differ as to why he had burnt it finally. Religious remorse, fury at adverse criticism, and despair at not reaching ideal perfection are among the reasons given. Again it is said that he had destroyed the manuscript with the others inadvertently. The poet Pushkin, who said of Gogol that behind his laughter you feel the unseen tears, was the chief friend and inspirer. It was he who suggested the plot of Dead Souls as well as the plot of the earlier work, The Reviser, which is almost the only comedy in Russian. The importance of both is their introduction of the social element in Russian literature, as Prince Kropotkin points out. Both hold up the mirror to Russian officialdom and the effects it has produced on the national character. The plot of Dead Souls is simple enough and is said to have been suggested by an actual episode. It was the day of serfdom in Russia, and a man's standing was often judged by the numbers of souls he possessed. There was a periodical consensus of serfs, say once every ten or twenty years. This being the case, an owner had to pay a tax on every soul registered at the last census, though some of the serfs might have died in the meantime. 
Nevertheless, the system had its material advantages, inasmuch as an owner might borrow money from a bank on the dead souls no less than on the living ones. The plan of Chichikov, Gogol's hero-villain, was therefore to make a journey through Russia and buy up the dead souls, at reduced rates, of course, saving their owners the government tax and acquiring for himself a list of fictitious serfs, which he might mortgage to a bank for a considerable sum. With this money he would buy an estate and some real-life serfs, and make the beginning of a fortune. Obviously, this plot, which is really no plot at all, but merely a ruse to enable Chichikov to go across Russia in a troika, with Selifan the coachman as a sort of Russian Sancho Panza, gives Gogol a magnificent opportunity to reveal his genius as a painter of Russian panorama, peopled with characteristic native types, commonplace enough, but drawn in comic relief. The comic explained the author, yet at the beginning of his career, is hidden everywhere. Only living in the midst of it, we are not conscious of it. But if the artist brings it into his art, on the stage, say, we shall roll about with laughter, and only wonder we did not notice it before. But the comic in Dead Souls is merely external. Let us see how Pushkin, who loved to laugh, regarded the work. As Gogol read it aloud to him from the manuscript, the poet grew more and more gloomy, and at last cried out, God, what a sad country Russia is! And later he said of it, Gogol invents nothing. It is the simple truth, the terrible truth. The work, on one hand, was received as nothing less than an exposure of all Russia. What would foreigners think of it? The liberal elements, however, the critical Belinsky among them, welcomed it as a revelation, as an omen of a freer future. Gogol, who had meant to do a service to Russia and not to heap ridicule upon her, took the criticisms of the Slavophiles to heart, and he palliated his critics by promising to bring about in the succeeding parts of his novel the redemption of Chichikov and the other knaves and blockheads. But the Westerner, Belinsky, and others of the liberal camp were mistrustful. It was about this time, 1847, that Gogol published his correspondence with friends, and aroused a literary controversy that is alive to this day. Tolstoy is to be found among his apologists. Opinions as to the actual significance of Gogol's masterpiece differ. Some consider the author a realist who has drawn with meticulous detail a picture of Russia. Others, Merikovsky among them, see in him a great symbolist. The very title, Dead Souls, is taken to describe the living of Russia as well as its dead. Chichikov himself is now generally regarded as a universal character. We find an American professor, William Lyon Phelps of Yale, holding the opinion that no one can travel far in America without meeting scores of Chichikovs. Indeed, he is an accurate portrait of the American promoter, of the successful commercial traveller, whose success depends entirely not on the real value and usefulness of his stock in trade, but on his knowledge of human nature, and of the persuasive power of his tongue. Footnote. Essays on Russian Novelists. Macmillan. End footnote. This is also the opinion held by Prince Kropotkin, who says, 
Chichikov may buy dead souls or railway shares, or he may collect funds for some charitable institution, or look for a position in a bank, but he is an immortal international type. We meet him everywhere. He is of all lands and of all times, but he takes different forms to suit the requirements of nationality and time. Footnote. Ideals and Realities in Russian Literature, Duckworth and Co. End footnote. Again, the work appears an interesting relation to Gogol himself. A romantic, writing of realities, he was appalled at the commonplaces of life, at finding no outlet for his love of colour derived from his Cossack ancestry. He realised that he had drawn a host of, quote, heroes, one more commonplace than another, that there was not a single palliating circumstance, that there was not a single place where the reader might find pause to rest and to console himself, and that when he had finished the book, it was as though he had walked out of an oppressive cellar into the open air. Unquote. He felt, perhaps, inward need to redeem Chichikov. In Merikovsky's opinion, he really wanted to save his own soul, but had succeeded only in losing it. His last years were spent morbidly. He suffered torments and ran from place to place like one hunted, but really always running from himself. Rome was his favourite refuge, and he returned to it again and again. In 1848 he made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but he could find no peace for his soul. Something of this mood had reflected itself even much earlier in the memoirs of a madman. Quote, O oh, little mother, save your poor son. Look how they are tormenting him. There's no place for him on earth. He's being driven. O oh, little mother, take pity on thy poor child. End quote. All the contradictions of Gogol's character are not to be disposed of in a brief essay. Such a strange combination of the tragic and the comic was truly seldom seen in one man. He, for one, realised that it is dangerous to jest with laughter. Everything that I laughed at became sad. And terrible, adds Merikovsky. But earlier his humour was lighter, less tinged with the tragic. In those days Pushkin never failed to be amused by what Gogol had brought to read to him. Even Reviser, 1835, with its tragic undercurrent, was a trifle compared to Dead Souls so that one is not astonished to hear that not only did the Tsar, Nicholas I, give permission to have it acted, in spite of its being a criticism of official rottenness, but laughed uproariously and led the applause. Moreover, he gave Gogol a grant of money and asked that its source should not be revealed to the author, lest, quote, he might feel obliged to write from the official point of view, unquote. Gogol was born at Sorochinets, Little Russia, in March 1809. He left college at 19 and went to St. Petersburg, where he secured a position as copying clerk in a government department. He did not keep his position long, yet long enough to store away in his mind a number of bureaucratic types which proved useful later. He quite suddenly started for America with money given to him by his mother for another purpose, but when he got as far as Lübeck, he turned back. He then wanted to become an actor, but his voice proved not strong enough. Later, he wrote a poem, which was unkindly received. 
As the copies remained unsold, he gathered them all up at the various shops and burnt them in his room. His next effort, Evenings at the Farm of Dikanka, 1831, was more successful. It was a series of gay and colourful pictures of Ukraine, the land he knew and loved, and if he is occasionally a little over-romantic here and there, he also achieves some beautiful lyrical passages. Then came another, even finer series called Mirgorod, which won the admiration of Pushkin. Next he planned a history of Little Russia and a history of the Middle Ages, this last work to be in eight or nine volumes. The result of all this study was a beautiful and short Homeric epic in prose called Taras Bulba. His appointment to a professorship in history was a ridiculous episode in his life. After a brilliant first lecture, in which he had evidently said all he had to say, he settled to a life of boredom for himself and his pupils. When he resigned, he said joyously, I am once more a free Cossack. Between 1834 and 1835, he produced a new series of stories, including his famous cloak, which may be regarded as the legitimate beginning of the Russian novel. Gogol knew little about women, who played an equally minor role in his life and in his books. This may be partly because his personal appearance was not prepossessing. He is described by a contemporary as a little man with legs too short for his body. He walked crookedly, he was clumsy, ill-dressed and rather ridiculous-looking, with his long lock of hair flapping on his forehead and his large prominent nose. From 1835, Gogol spent almost his entire time abroad. Some strange unrest, possibly his Cossack blood, possessed him like a demon, and he never stopped anywhere very long. After his pilgrimage in 1848 to Jerusalem, he returned to Moscow, his entire possessions in a little bag. These consisted of pamphlets, critiques and newspaper articles, mostly inimical to himself. He wandered about with these from house to house. Everything he had of value he gave away to the poor. He ceased work entirely. According to all accounts, he spent his last days in praying and fasting. Visions came to him. His death, which came in 1852, was extremely fantastic. His last words, uttered in a loud frenzy, were, A ladder! Quick! A ladder! This call for a ladder, a spiritual ladder, in the words of Merikovsky, had been made on an earlier occasion by a certain Russian saint, who used almost the same language. I shall laugh my bitter laugh, was the inscription placed on Gogol's grave. Author's Preface to the First Portion of This Work Second edition published in 1846. From the author to the reader. Reader, whosoever or wheresoever you be, and whatsoever be your station, whether that of a member of the higher ranks of society or that of a member of the plainer walks of life, I beg of you, if God shall have given you any skill in letters, and my book shall fall into your hands, to extend to me your assistance. For in the book which lies before you, and which probably you have read in its first edition, there is portrayed a man who is a type taken from our Russian Empire. This man travels about the Russian land and meets with folk of every condition, from the nobly born to the humble toiler. 
him I have taken as a type, to show forth the vices and the failings, rather than the merits and the virtues, of the commonplace Russian individual. And the characters which revolve around him have also been selected for the purpose of demonstrating our national weaknesses and shortcomings. As for men and women of the better sort, I propose to portray them in subsequent volumes. Probably much of what I have described is improbable, and does not happen as things customarily happen in Russia, and the reason for that is that for me to learn all that I have wished to do has been impossible, in that human life is not sufficiently long to become acquainted with even a hundredth part of what takes place within the borders of the Russian Empire. Also, carelessness, inexperience, and lack of time have led to my perpetuating numerous errors and inaccuracies of detail, with the result that in every line of the book there is something which calls for correction. For these reasons I beg of you, my reader, to act also as my corrector. Do not despise the task, for however superior be your education, and however lofty your station, and however insignificant in your eyes my book, and however trifling the apparent labour of correcting and commenting upon that book, I implore you to do as I have said. And you too, O reader of lowly education and simple status, I beseech you not to look upon yourself as too ignorant to be able in some fashion, however small, to help me. Every man who has lived in the world and mixed with his fellow men will have remarked something which has remained hidden from the eyes of others and therefore I beg of you not to deprive me of your comments, seeing that it cannot be that, should you read my book with attention, you will have nothing to say at some point therein. For example, how excellent it would be if some reader who is sufficiently rich in experience and the knowledge of life to be acquainted with the sort of characters which I have described herein would annotate in detail the book, without missing a single page, and undertake to read it precisely as though, laying pen and paper before him, he were first to peruse a few pages of the work, and then to recall his own life, and the lives of the folk with whom he has come into contact, and everything which he has seen with his own eyes, or has heard of from others, and to proceed to annotate, in so far as may tally with his own experience or otherwise, what is set forth in the book, and to jot down the whole exactly as it stands pictured to his memory, and, lastly, to send me the jottings as they may issue from his pen, and to continue doing so until he has covered the entire work. Yes, he would indeed do me a vital service. Of style or beauty of expression he would need take no account, for the value of a book lies in its truth and its actuality rather than in its wording nor would he need to consider my feelings if at any point he should feel minded to blame or to upbraid me, or to demonstrate the harm rather than the good which has been done through any lack of thought or verisimilitude of which I have been guilty. In short, for anything and for everything in the way of criticism, I should be thankful. Also, it would be an excellent thing if some reader in the higher walks of life some person who stands remote, both by life and by education, from the circle of folk which I have pictured in my book, but who knows the life of the circle in which he himself revolves, would undertake to read my work in similar fashion, and methodically to recall to his mind any members of superior social classes whom he has met, 
and carefully to observe whether there exists any resemblance between one such class and another, and whether at times there may not be repeated in a higher sphere what is done in a lower, and likewise to note any additional fact in the same connection which may occur to him. That is to say, any fact pertaining to the higher ranks of society which would seem to confirm or to disprove his conclusions. And, lastly, to record that fact as it may have occurred within his own experience, while giving full details of persons, of individual manners, tendencies, and customs, and also of inanimate surroundings, of dress, furniture, fittings of houses, and so forth. For I need knowledge of the classes in question, which are the flower of our people. In fact, this very reason, the reason that I do not yet know Russian life in all its aspects, and in the degree to which it is necessary for me to know it in order to become a successful author, is what has, until now, prevented me from publishing any subsequent volumes of this story. Again, it would be an excellent thing if someone who is endowed with the faculty of imagining and vividly picturing to himself the various situations wherein a character may be placed, and of mentally following up a character's career in one field and another, by this I mean someone who possesses the power of entering into and developing the ideas of the author whose work he may be reading, would scan each character herein portrayed, and tell me how each character ought to have acted at a given juncture, and what, to judge from the beginnings of each character, ought to have become of that character later, and what new circumstances might be devised in connection therewith, and what new details might advantageously be added to those already described. Honestly can I say that to consider these points against the time when a new edition of my book may be published in a different and a better form would give me the greatest possible pleasure. One thing in particular would I ask of any reader who may be willing to give me the benefit of his advice. That is to say, I would beg of him to suppose, while recording his remarks, that it is for the benefit of a man in no way his equal in education, or similar to him in tastes and ideas, or capable of apprehending criticisms without full explanation appended, that he is doing so. Rather, would I ask such a reader to suppose that before him there stands a man of incomparably inferior enlightenment and schooling, a rude country bumpkin whose life throughout has been passed in retirement, a bumpkin to whom it is necessary to explain each circumstance in detail, while never forgetting to be as simple of speech as though he were a child, and at every step there were a danger of employing terms beyond his understanding. Should these precautions be kept constantly in view by any reader undertaking to annotate my book, that reader's remarks will exceed in weight and interest even his own expectations, and will bring me very real advantage. Thus, provided that my earnest request be heeded by my readers, and that among them there may be found a few kind spirits to do as I desire, the following is the manner in which I would request them to transmit their notes for my consideration. Inscribing the package with my name, let them then enclose that package in a second one addressed either to the rector of the University of St. Petersburg, or to Professor Shevirev of the University of Moscow, 
according as the one or the other of those two cities may be the nearer to the sender. Lastly, while thanking all journalists and literateurs for their previously published criticisms of my book, criticisms which, in spite of a spice of that intemperance and prejudice which is common to all humanity, have proved of the greatest use both to my head and to my heart, I beg of such writers again to favour me with their reviews, for in all sincerity I can assure them that whatsoever they may be pleased to say for my improvement and my instruction will be received by me with naught but gratitude. End of author's preface. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol Translated by D. J. Hogarth Part 1, Chapter 1 To the door of an inn in the provincial town of N, there drew up a smart britchka, a light spring carriage of the sort affected by bachelors, retired lieutenant colonels, staff captains, landowners possessed of about a hundred souls, and, in short, all persons who rank as gentlemen of the intermediate category. In the britchka was seated such a gentleman, a man who, though not handsome, was not ill-favored, not over-fat, and not over-thin. Also, though not over-elderly, he was not over-young. His arrival produced no stir in the town, and was accompanied by no particular incident, beyond that a couple of peasants who happened to be standing at the door of a dram-shop exchanged a few comments with reference to the equipage, rather than to the individual who was seated in it. "'Look at that carriage!' one of them said to the other. "'Think you it will be going as far as Moscow?' "'I think it will,' replied his companion. "'But not as far as Kazan, eh?' "'No, not as far as Kazan.' With that, the conversation ended. Presently, as the britchka was approaching the inn, it was met by a young man in a pair of very short, very tight breeches of white dimity, a quasi-fashionable frock coat, and a dicky fastened with a pistol-shaped bronze tie pin. The young man turned his head as he passed the britchka and eyed it attentively, after which he clapped his hand to his cap, which was in danger of being removed by the wind, and resumed his way. On the vehicle reaching the inn door, its occupant found standing there to welcome him the polevoy, or waiter, of the establishment, an individual of such nimble and brisk movement that even to distinguish the character of his face was impossible. Running out, with a napkin in one hand and his lanky form clad in a tailcoat, reaching almost to the nape of his neck, he tossed back his locks and escorted the gentleman upstairs along a wooden gallery and so to the bedchamber which God had prepared for the gentleman's reception. The said bedchamber was of quite ordinary appearance, since the inn belonged to the species to be found in all provincial towns, the species wherein, for two roubles a day, travellers may obtain a room swarming with black beetles and communicating by a doorway with the apartment adjoining. True, the doorway may be blocked up with a wardrobe, yet behind it, in all probability, there will be standing a silent, 
motionless neighbor whose ears are burning to learn every possible detail concerning the latest arrival. The inn's exterior corresponded with its interior. Long and consisting of only two stories, the building had its lower half destitute of stucco, with the result that the dark red bricks, originally more or less dingy, had grown yet dingier under the influence of atmospheric changes. As for the upper half of the building, it was, of course, painted the usual tint of unfading yellow. Within, on the ground floor, there stood a number of benches heaped with horse collars, rope, and sheepskins, while the window seat accommodated a zbitenchik, cheek by jowl, with a samovar, the latter so closely resembling the former in appearance, that, but for the fact of the samovar possessing a pitch-black lip, the samovar and the zbitenchik might have been two of a pair. During the traveler's inspection of his room, his luggage was brought into the apartment. First came a portmanteau of white leather whose raggedness indicated that the receptacle had made several previous journeys. The bearers of the same were the gentleman's coachman, Selifan, a little man in a large overcoat, and the gentleman's valet, Petrushka, the latter a fellow of about thirty, clad in a worn, over-ample jacket which had formerly graced his master's shoulders and possessed of a nose and a pair of lips whose coarseness communicated to his face rather a sullen expression. Behind the portmanteau came a small dispatch box of redwood lined with birch bark, a bootcase, and, wrapped in blue paper, a roast fowl, all of which having been deposited, the coachman departed to look after his horses, and the valet to establish himself in the little dark anteroom or kennel where already he had stored a cloak, a bag full of livery, and his own peculiar smell. Pressing the narrow bedstead back against the wall, he covered it with the tiny remnant of mattress, a remnant as thin and flat, perhaps also as greasy, as a pancake, which he had managed to beg of the landlord of the establishment. While the attendants had been thus setting things straight, the gentleman had repaired to the common parlor. The appearance of common parlors of the kind is known to everyone who travels. Always they have varnished walls, which, grown black in their upper portions with tobacco smoke, are, in their lower, grown shiny with the friction of customers' backs, more especially with that of the backs of such local tradesmen as, on market days, make it their regular practice to resort to the local hostelry for a glass of tea. Also, parlors of this kind invariably contain smutty ceilings, an equally smutty chandelier, a number of pendant shades which jump and rattle whenever the waiter scurries across the shabby oilcloth with a tray full of glasses, the glasses looking like a flock of birds roosting by the seashore, and a selection of oil paintings. In short, there are certain objects which one sees in every inn. In the present case, the only outstanding feature of the room was the fact that in one of the paintings a nymph was portrayed as possessing breasts of a size such as the reader can never in his life have beheld. A similar caricaturing of nature is to be noted in the historical pictures of unknown origin, period, and creation, 
which reach us sometimes through the instrumentality of Russian magnates who profess to be connoisseurs of art from Italy, owing to the said magnates having made such purchases solely on the advice of the couriers who have escorted them. To resume, however, our traveller removed his cap and divested his neck of a party-coloured woollen scarf of the kind which a wife makes for her husband with her own hands, while accompanying the gift with interminable injunctions as to how best such a garment ought to be folded. True, bachelors also wear similar gauds, but in their case, God alone knows who may have manufactured the articles. For my part, I cannot endure them. Having unfolded the scarf, the gentlemen ordered dinner, and whilst the various dishes were being got ready, cabbage soup, a pie several weeks old, a dish of marrow and peas, a dish of sausages and cabbage, a roast fowl, some salted cucumber, and the sweet tart which stands perpetually ready for use in such establishments, whilst, I say, these things were either being warmed up or brought in cold, the gentleman induced the waiter to retail certain fragments of tittle-tattle concerning the late landlord of the hostelry, the amount of income which the hostelry produced, and the character of its present proprietor. To the last-mentioned inquiry, the waiter returned the answer invariably given in such cases, namely, My master is a terribly hard man, sir. Curious that in enlightened Russia, so many people cannot even take a meal at an inn without chattering to the attendant and making free with him. Nevertheless, not all the questions which the gentleman asked were aimless ones, for he inquired who was the governor of the town, who president of the local council, and who public prosecutor. In short, he omitted no single official of note while asking also, though with an air of detachment, the most exact particulars concerning the landowners of the neighborhood. Which of them, he inquired, possessed serfs, and how many of them? How far from the town did those landowners reside? What was the character of each landowner, and was he in the habit of paying frequent visits to the town? The gentleman also made searching inquiries concerning the hygienic condition of the countryside, was there, he asked, much sickness about, whether sporadic fever, fatal forms of ague, smallpox, or what not? Yet, though his solicitude concerning these matters showed more than ordinary curiosity, his bearing retained its gravity unimpaired, and from time to time he blew his nose with portentous fervor. Indeed, the manner in which he accomplished this latter feat was marvelous in the extreme, for, Though that member emitted sounds equal to those of a trumpet in intensity, he could yet, with his accompanying air of guileless dignity, evoke the waiter's undivided respect, so much so that whenever the sounds of the nose reached that menial's ears, he would shake back his locks, straighten himself into a posture of marked solicitude, and inquire afresh with a head slightly inclined, whether the gentleman happened to require anything further. After dinner, the guest consumed a cup of coffee, and then, seating himself upon the sofa, with, behind him, one of those wool-covered cushions which, in Russian taverns, resemble nothing so much as a cobblestone or a brick, fell to snoring, whereafter, 
Returning with a start to consciousness, he ordered himself to be conducted to his room, flung himself at full length upon the bed, and once more slept soundly for a couple of hours. Aroused eventually by the waiter, he, at the latter's request, inscribed a fragment of paper with his name, his surname, and his rank, for communication in accordance with the law to the police. And on that paper, the waiter, leaning forward from the corridor, read, syllable by syllable, Paul Ivanovich Chichikov, collegiate counselor, landowner, traveling on private affairs. The waiter had just time to accomplish this feat before Paul Ivanovich Chichikov set forth to inspect the town. Apparently, the place succeeded in satisfying him, and, to tell the truth, it was at least up to the usual standard of our provincial capitals. Where the staring yellow of stone edifices did not greet his eye, he found himself confronted with the more modest gray of wooden ones, which, consisting for the most part of one or two stories, added to the range of attics which provincial architects love so well, looked almost lost amid the expanses of street and intervening medleys of broken or half-finished partition walls. At other points, evidence of more life and movement was to be seen, and here the houses stood crowded together and displayed dilapidated, rain-blurred signboards whereon boots of cakes or pairs of blue breeches inscribed Arshavsky, Taylor, and so forth were depicted. Over a shop containing hats and caps was written Vasily Fedorov, Foreigner, while at another spot a signboard portrayed a billiard table and two players the latter clad in frock coats of the kind usually affected by actors whose part it is to enter the stage during the closing act of a piece. Even though, with arms sharply crooked and legs slightly bent, the said billiard players were taking the most careful aim, but succeeding only in making abortive strokes in the air. Each emporium of the sort had written over it, this is the best establishment of its kind in the town. Also, al fresco in the streets, there stood tables heaped with nuts, soap, and gingerbread, the latter but little distinguishable from the soap, and at an eating house there was displayed the sign of a plump fish transfixed with a gaff. But the sign most frequently to be discerned was the insignia of the state, the double-headed eagle, now replaced in this connection with the laconic inscription dram shop as for the paving of the town it was uniformly bad the gentleman peered into the municipal gardens which contained only a few sorry trees that were poorly selected requiring to be propped with oil-painted triangular green supports and able to boast of a height no greater than that of an ordinary walking stick Yet recently, the local paper had said, apropos of a gala, that, thanks to the efforts of our civil governor, the town has become enriched with a plaisance full of umbrageous, spaciously branching trees. Even on the most sultry day, they afford agreeable shade, and indeed gratifying was it to see the hearts of our citizens panting with an impulse of gratitude as their eyes shed tears in recognition of all that their governor has done for them. Next, 
After inquiring of a gendarme as to the best ways and means of finding the local council, the local law courts, and the local governor, should he, Chichikov, have need of them, the gentleman went on to inspect the river which ran through the town. En route, he tore off a notice affixed to a post in order that he might the more conveniently read it after his return to the inn. Also, he bestowed upon a lady of pleasant exterior who, escorted by footmen laden with a bundle, happened to be passing along a wooden sidewalk a prolonged stare. Lastly, he threw around him a comprehensive glance, as though to fix in his mind the general topography of the place, and betook himself home. There, gently aided by the waiter, he ascended the stairs to his bedroom, drank a glass of tea, and seating himself at the table, called for a candle, which having been brought him, he produced from his pocket the notice, held it close to the flame, and conned its tenor, slightly contracting his right eye as he did so. Yet there was little in the notice to call for remark. All that it said was that shortly one of Kotzebue's plays would be given, and that one of the parts in the play was to be taken by a certain Monsieur Poplevin, and another by a certain Mademoiselle Ziablova, while the remaining parts were to be filled by a number of less important personages. Nevertheless, the gentleman perused the notice with careful attention, and even jotted down the prices to be asked for seats at the performance. Also, he remarked that the bill had been printed in the press of the provincial government. Next, he turned over the paper in order to see if anything further was to be read on the reverse side, but, finding nothing there, he refolded the document, placed it in the box which served him as a receptacle for odds and ends, and brought the day to a close with a portion of cold veal, a bottle of pickles, and a sound sleep. The following day he devoted to playing calls upon the various municipal officials, a first and a very respectful visit being paid to the governor. This personage turned out to resemble Chichikov himself, in that he was neither fat nor thin. Also, he wore the riband of the Order of St. Anna about his neck, and was reported to have been recommended also for the star. For the rest, he was large and good-natured, and had a habit of amusing himself with occasional spells of knitting. Next, Chichikov repaired to the vice-governors, thence to the house of the public prosecutor, to that of the president of the local council, to that of the chief of police, to that of the commissioner of taxes, and to that of the local director of state factories. True, the task of remembering every big wig in this world of ours is not a very easy one, but at least our visitor displayed the greatest activity in his work of paying calls, seeing that he went so far as to pay his respects also to the inspector of the municipal department of medicine and to the city architect. Thereafter, he sat thoughtfully in his britchka, plunged in meditation on the subject of whom else it might be well to visit. However, not a single magnate had been neglected, and in conversation with his hosts, he had contrived to flatter each separate one. For instance, to the governor he had hinted that a stranger, on arriving in his, the governor's province, would conceive that he had reached paradise, so velvety were the roads. Governors who appoint capable subordinates, had said Chichikov, 
are deserving of the most ample meed of praise. Again to the chief of police, our hero had passed a most gratifying remark on the subject of the local gendarmerie, while in his conversation with the vice-governor and the president of the local council, neither of whom had, as yet, risen above the rank of state councillor, he had twice been guilty of the gaucherie of addressing his interlocutors with the title of Your Excellency, a blunder which had not failed to delight them. In the result, the governor had invited him to a reception the same evening, and certain other officials had followed suit by inviting him, one of them to dinner, a second to a tea party, and so forth and so forth. Of himself, however, the traveller had spoken little, or, if he had spoken at any length, he had done so in a general sort of way, with marked modesty. Indeed, at moments of the kind his discourse had assumed something of a literary vein, in that invariably he had stated that, being a worm of no account in the world, he was deserving of no consideration at the hands of his fellows, that in time he had undergone many strange experiences, that subsequently he had suffered much in the cause of truth, that he had many enemies seeking his life, and that being desirous of rest, he was now engaged in searching for a spot wherein to dwell. Wherefore, having stumbled upon the town in which he now found himself, he had considered it his bounden duty to evince his respect for the chief authorities of the place. This, and no more, was all that, for the moment, the town succeeded in learning about the new arrival. Naturally, he lost no time in presenting himself at the governor's evening party. First, however, his preparations for that function occupied a space of over two hours and necessitated an attention to his toilet of a kind not commonly seen. That is to say, after a brief postprandial nap, he called for soap and water and spent a considerable period in the task of scrubbing his cheeks, which, for the purpose, he supported from within with his tongue, and then drying his full round face from the ears downwards with a towel which he took from the waiter's shoulder. Twice he snorted into the waiter's countenance as he did this, and then he posted himself in front of the mirror, donned a false shirt front, plucked out a couple of hairs which were protruding from his nose, and appeared vested in a frock coat of bilberry-coloured check. Thereafter, driving through broad streets sparsely lighted with lanterns, he arrived at the governor's residence to find it illuminated as for a ball. Barouches with gleaming lamps, a couple of gendarmes posted before the doors, a babble of postillions cries, nothing of a kind likely to be impressive was wanting, and, on reaching the salon, the visitor actually found himself obliged to close his eyes for a moment, so strong was the mingled sheen of lamps, candles, and feminine apparel. Everything seemed suffused with light, and everywhere flitting and flashing were to be seen black coats. Even as on a hot summer's day, Flies revolve around a sugar loaf while the old housekeeper is cutting it into cubes before the open window, and the children of the house crowd around her to watch the movements of her rugged hands as those members ply the smoking pestle, and airy squadrons of flies, borne on the breeze, enter boldly as though free of the house, and, taking advantage of the fact that the glare of the sunshine is troubling the old lady's sight, disperse themselves over broken and unbroken fragments alike, 
even though the lethargy induced by the opulence of summer and the rich shower of dainties to be encountered at every step has induced them to enter less for the purpose of eating than for that of showing themselves in public, of parading up and down the sugar loaf, of rubbing both their hindquarters and their fore against one another, of cleaning their bodies under the wings, of extending their forelegs over their heads and grooming themselves, and of flying out of the window again to return with other predatory squadrons. Indeed, so dazed was Chichikov that scarcely did he realize that the governor was taking him by the arm and presenting him to his, the governor's, lady. Yet the newly arrived guest kept his head sufficiently to contrive to murmur some such compliment as might befittingly come from a middle-aged individual of a rank neither excessively high nor excessively low. Next, when the couples had been formed for dancing and the remainder of the company found itself pressed back against the walls, Chichikov folded his arms and carefully scrutinized the dancers. Some of the ladies were dressed well and in the fashion, while the remainder were clad in such garments as God usually bestows upon a provincial town. Also, here as elsewhere, the men belonged to two separate and distinct categories, one of which comprised slender individuals who, flitting around the ladies, were scarcely to be distinguished from denizens of the metropolis, so carefully, so artistically groomed were their whiskers, so presentable their oval, clean-shaven faces, so easy the manner of their dancing attendance upon the womanfolk, so glib their French conversation as they quizzed their female companions. As for the other category, it comprised individuals who, stout, or of the same build as Chichikov, that is to say, neither very portly nor very lean, backed and sidled away from the ladies, and kept peering hither and thither to see whether the governor's footmen had set out green tables for whist. Their features were full and plump, some of them had beards, and in no case was their hair curled or waved or arranged in what the French call the devil-may-care style. On the contrary, their heads were either close-cropped or brushed very smooth, and their faces were round and firm. This category represented the more respectable officials of the town. In passing, I may say that in business matters, fat men always prove superior to their leaner brethren, which is probably the reason why the latter are mostly to be found in the political police or acting as mere ciphers whose existence is a purely hopeless, airy, trivial one. Again, stout individuals never take a back seat, but always a front one, and wheresoever it may be, they sit firmly and with confidence, and decline to budge even though a seat crack and bend with their weight. For comeliness of exterior, they care not a rap, and therefore a dress coat sits less easily on their figures than is the case with figures of leaner individuals. Yet invariably, fat men amass the greater wealth. In three years' time, a thin man will not have a single serf whom he has left unpledged, whereas, well, pray look at a fat man's fortunes, and what will you see? First of all, a suburban villa, and then a larger suburban villa, and then a villa close to town, and lastly a country estate which comprises every amenity. That is to say, having served both God and the state, the stout individual has won universal respect and will end by retiring from business, reordering his mode of life, and becoming a Russian landowner. 
in other words, a fine gentleman who dispenses hospitality, lives in comfort and luxury, and is destined to leave his property to heirs who are proposing to squander the same on foreign travel. That the foregoing represents pretty much the gist of Chichikov's reflections as he stood watching the company I will not attempt to deny. And of those reflections, the upshot was that he decided to join himself to the stouter section of the guests, among whom he had already recognized several familiar faces, namely those of the public prosecutor, a man with beetling brows over eyes which seemed to be saying with a wink, Come into the next room, my friend, for I have something to say to you though in the main their owner was a man of grave and taciturn habit, of the postmaster, an insignificant-looking individual, yet a would-be wit and a philosopher, and of the president of the local council, a man of much amiability and good sense. These three personages greeted Chichikov as an old acquaintance, and to their salutations he responded with a sidelong, yet a sufficiently civil bow. Also, he became acquainted with an extremely unctuous and approachable landowner named Manilov, and with a landowner of more uncouth exterior named Sobakevich, the latter of whom began the acquaintance by treading heavily upon Chichikov's toes and then begging his pardon. Next, Chichikov received an offer of a cut-in at whist and accepted the same with his usual courteous inclination of the head. Seating themselves at a green table, the party did not rise therefrom till supper-time, and during that period all conversation between the players had become hushed, as is the custom when men have given themselves up to a really serious pursuit. Even the postmaster, a talkative man by nature, had no sooner taken the cards into his hand than he assumed an expression of profound thought, pursed his lips, and retained this attitude unchanged throughout the game. Only when playing a court card was it his custom to strike the table with his fist and exclaim, if the card happened to be a queen, Now, old Popadia! And if the card happened to be a king, Now, peasant of Tambov! To which his ejaculations invariably the president and the local council retorted, Ah! I have him by the ears! I have him by the ears! And from the neighborhood of the table, other strong ejaculations relative to the play would arise, interposed with one or another of those nicknames which participants in a game are apt to apply to members of the various suits. I need hardly add that, the game over, the players fell to quarreling, and that, in the dispute, our friend joined, though so artfully as to let everyone see that, in spite of the fact that he was wrangling, he was doing so only in the most amicable fashion possible. Never did he say outright, You played the wrong card at such and such a point. No, he always employed some such phrase as, You permitted yourself to make a slip, and thus afforded me the honor of covering your deuce. Indeed, the better to keep in accord with his antagonists, he kept offering them his silver enameled snuff-box, at the bottom of which lay a couple of violets placed there for the sake of their scent. In particular, did the newcomer pay attention to landowners Manilov and Sobakevich, so much so that his haste to arrive on good terms with them led to his leaving the president and the postmaster rather in the shade. At the same time, certain questions which he put to those two landowners evinced not only curiosity, but also a certain amount of sound intelligence, for he began by asking them how many peasant souls each of them possessed, and how their affairs happened at present to be situated, and then proceeded to enlighten himself also as their standing and their families. Indeed, 
It was not long before he had succeeded in fairly enchanting his new friends. In particular did Manilov, a man still in his prime and possessed of a pair of eyes which, sweet as sugar, blinked whenever he laughed, find himself unable to make enough of his enchanter. Clasping Chichikov long and fervently by the hand, he besought him to do him, Manilov, the honour of visiting his country house, which he declared to lie at a distance of not more than fifteen versts from the boundaries of town. And in return, Chichikov averred, with an exceedingly affable bow and a most sincere handshake, that he was prepared not only to fulfil his friend's behest, but also to look upon the fulfilling of it as a sacred duty. In the same way, Sobakevich said to him laconically, And do you pay me a visit? and then proceeded to shuffle a pair of boots of such dimensions that to find a pair to correspond with them would have been indeed difficult, more especially at the present day when the race of epic heroes is beginning to die out in Russia. Next day, Chichikov dined and spent the evening at the house of the chief of police, a residence where, three hours after dinner, everyone sat down to whist and remained so seated until two o'clock in the morning. On this occasion, Chichikov made the acquaintance of, among others, a landowner named Nozdrev, a dissipated little fellow of thirty who had no sooner exchanged three or four words with his new acquaintance than he began to address him in the second person singular. Yet although he did the same to the chief of police and the public prosecutor, the company had no sooner seated themselves at the card table than both the one and the other of these functionaries started to keep a careful eye upon Nozdrev's tricks and to watch practically every card which he played. The following evening Chichikov spent with the president of the local council, who received his guests, even though the latter included two ladies, in a greasy dressing gown. Upon that followed an evening at the vice-governor's, a large dinner party at the house of the commissioner of taxes, a smaller dinner party at the house of the public prosecutor, a very wealthy man, and a subsequent reception given by the mayor. In short, not an hour of the day did Chichikov find himself forced to spend at home, and his return to the inn became necessary only for the purposes of sleeping. Somehow or other, he had landed on his feet, and everywhere he figured as an experienced man of the world. No matter what the conversation chanced to be about, he always contrived to maintain his part in the same. Did the discourse turn upon horse-breeding? Upon horse-breeding he happened to be particularly well qualified to speak. Did the company fall to discussing well-bred dogs, at once he had remarks of the most pertinent kind possible to offer. Did the company touch upon a prosecution which had recently been carried out by the excise department? Instantly he showed that he too was not wholly unacquainted with legal affairs. Did an opinion chance to be expressed concerning billiards? On that subject too he was at least able to avoid committing a blunder. Did a reference occur to virtue, concerning virtue? he hastened to deliver himself in a way which brought tears to every eye. Did the subject in hand happen to be the distilling of brandy? Well, that was a matter concerning which he had the soundest of knowledge. Did anyone happen to mention customs officials and inspectors? From that moment he expatiated as though he too had been both a minor functionary and a major. Yet a remarkable fact was the circumstance that he always contrived to temper his omniscience with a certain readiness to give way, a certain ability so to keep a rein upon himself that never did his utterances become too loud or too soft, or transcend what was perfectly befitting. In a word, 
He was always a gentleman of excellent manners, and every official in the place felt pleased when he saw him enter the door. Thus the governor gave it as his opinion that Chichikov was a man of excellent intentions. The public prosecutor said that he was a good man of business. The chief of gendarmerie, that he was a man of education. The president of the local council, that he was a man of breeding and refinement. And the wife of the chief of gendarmerie, that his politeness of behavior was equaled only by his affability of bearing. Nay, even Sobakevich, who as a rule never spoke well of any one, said to his lanky wife when, on returning late from the town, he undressed and betook himself to bed by her side, My dear, this evening after dinner with the chief of police, I went on to the governor's and met there, among others, a certain Paul Ivanovich Chichikov, who is a collegiate counsellor and a very pleasant fellow. To this his spouse replied, Hmph! and then dealt him a hearty kick in the ribs. Such were the flattering opinions earned by the newcomer to the town, and these opinions he retained until the time when a certain specialty of his, a certain scheme of his, the reader will learn presently what it was, plunged the majority of the townsfolk into a sea of perplexity. End of Part 1 Chapter 1 Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol Translated by D.J. Hogarth Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 1 For more than two weeks the visitor lived amid a round of evening parties and dinners, wherefore he spent, as the saying goes, a very pleasant time. Finally he decided to extend his visits beyond the urban boundaries by going and calling upon landowners Manilov and Sabakovich seeing that he had promised on his honor to do so. Yet what really incited him to this may have been a more essential cause, a matter of greater gravity, a purpose which stood nearer to his heart than the motive which I have just given. And of that purpose the reader will learn if only he will have the patience to read this prefatory narrative, which, lengthy though it may be, may yet develop and expand in proportion as we approach the denouement with which the present work is destined to be crowned. One evening, therefore, Selifan, the coachman, received orders to have the horses harnessed in good time next morning, while Petrushka received orders to remain behind, for the purpose of looking after the portmanteau and the room. In passing, the reader may care to become more fully acquainted with the two serving men of whom I have spoken. Naturally, they were not persons of much note, but merely what folk call characters of secondary or even tertiary importance. Yet, despite the fact that the springs and the thread of this romance will not depend upon them, but only touch upon them, and occasionally include them, the author has a passion for circumstantiality, and, like the average Russian, such a desire for accuracy as even a German could not rival. To what the reader already knows concerning the personages in hand, it is therefore necessary to add that Petrushka actually wore a cast-off brown jacket of a size too large for him, as also that he had, according to the custom of individuals of his calling, a pair of thick lips and a very prominent nose. 
In temperament, he was taciturn rather than loquacious, and he cherished a yearning for self-education. That is to say, he loved to read books, even though their contents came alike to him, whether they were books of heroic adventure or mere grammars or liturgical compendia. As I say, he perused every book with an equal amount of attention, and had he been offered a work on chemistry, would have accepted that also. Not the words which he read, but the mere solace derived from the act of reading was what especially pleased his mind. Even though at any moment there might launch itself from the page some devil-sent word whereof he could make neither head nor tail. For the most part, his task of reading was performed in a recumbent position in the anteroom, which circumstance ended by causing his mattress to become as ragged and as thin as a wafer. In addition to his love of poring over books, he could boast of two habits which constituted two other essential features of his character, namely a habit of retiring to rest in his clothes, that is to say, in the brown jacket above mentioned, and a habit of everywhere bearing with him his own peculiar atmosphere, his own peculiar smell, a smell which filled any lodging with such subtlety that he needed but to make up his bed anywhere even in a room hitherto untenanted, and to drag thither his great coat and other impedimenta for that room at once to assume an air of having been lived in during the past ten years. Nevertheless, though a fastidious and even an irritable man, Chichikov would merely frown when his nose caught this smell amid the freshness of the morning and exclaim with a toss of his head, The devil only knows what is up with you, Surely you sweat a good deal, do you not? The best thing you can do is go and take a bath. To this, Petrushka would make no reply, but, approaching, brush in hand, the spot where his master's coat would be pendant, or starting to arrange one and another article in order, would strive to seem wholly immersed in his work. Yet of what was he thinking as he remained thus silent? Perhaps he was saying to himself, My master is a good fellow, but for him to keep on saying the same thing forty times over is a little wearisome. Only God knows and sees all things. Wherefore, for a mere human being to know what is in the mind of a servant while his master is scolding him is wholly impossible. However, no more need be said about Petrushka. On the other hand, Coachman Selifan. But here let me remark that I do not like engaging the reader's attention in connection with persons of a lower class than himself, for experience has taught me that we do not willingly familiarize ourselves with the lower orders, that it is the custom of the average Russian to yearn exclusively for information concerning persons on the higher rungs of the social ladder. In fact, even a bowing acquaintance with a prince or a lord counts in his eyes for more than do the most intimate of relations with ordinary folk. For the same reason the author feels apprehensive on his hero's account, seeing that he has made that hero a mere collegiate counselor, a mere person with whom Aulic counselors might consort, but upon whom persons of the grade of full general, note one, would probably bestow one of those glances proper to a man who is cringing at their august feet. Worse still, such persons of the grade of general are likely to treat Chichikov with studied negligence, and to an author, studied negligence spells death. Note 1. 
In this case, the term general refers to a civil grade equivalent to the military rank of the same title. However, in spite of the distressfulness of the foregoing possibilities, it is time that I return to my hero. After issuing overnight the necessary orders, he awoke early, washed himself, rubbed himself from head to foot with a wet sponge, a performance executed only on Sundays, and the day in question happened to be a Sunday, shaved his face with such care that his cheeks issued of absolutely satin-like smoothness and polish, donned his first bilberry-colored spotted frock coat, and then his bearskin overcoat, descended the staircase, attended throughout by the waiter, and entered his britchka. With a loud rattle, the vehicle left the inn-yard and issued into the street. A passing priest doffed his cap, and a few urchins in grimy shirts shouted, "'Gentlemen, please give a poor orphan a trifle!' Presently the driver noticed that a sturdy young rascal was on the point of climbing onto the splashboard, wherefore he cracked his whip and the britchka leapt forward with increased speed over the cobblestones. At last, with a feeling of relief, the travelers caught sight of Macadam ahead, which promised an end both to the cobblestones and to sundry other annoyances. And, sure enough, after his head had been bumped a few more times against the boot of the conveyance, Chichikov found himself bowling over softer ground. On the town receding into the distance, the sides of the road began to be varied with the usual hillocks, fir trees, clumps of young pine, trees with old scarred trunks, bushes of wild juniper, and so forth. Presently there came into view also strings of country villas, which, with their carved supports and gray roofs, the latter looking like pendant embroidered tablecloths, resembled rather bundles of old faggots. Likewise the customary peasants, dressed in sheepskin jackets, could be seen yawning on benches before their huts, while their womenfolk, fat of feature and swathed of bosom, gazed out of upper windows, and the windows below displayed here a peering calf, and there the unsightly jaws of a pig. In short, the view was one of the familiar type. After passing the fifteenth verse stone, Chichikov suddenly recollected that, according to Manilov, fifteen versts was the exact distance between his country house and the town, but the sixteenth verst stone flew by, and the said country house was still nowhere to be seen. In fact, but for the circumstance that the travelers happened to encounter a couple of peasants, they would have come on their errand in Maine. To a query as to whether the country house known as Zamanilovka was anywhere in the neighborhood, the peasants replied by doffing their caps, after which one of them, who seemed to boast of a little more intelligence than his companion, and who wore a wedge-shaped beard, made answer, Perhaps you mean Manilovka, not Zamanilovka? Yes, yes, Manilovka. Manilovka, eh? Well, you must continue for another verst, and then you will see it straight before you on the right. On the right? re-echoed the coachman. Yes, on the right, affirmed the peasant. You are on the proper road for Manilovka, but Zamanilovka, well, there is no such place. The house you mean is called Manilovka, because Manilovka is its name, but no house at all is called Zamanilovka. The house you mean stands there, on that hill, 
and is a stone house in which a gentleman lives, and its name is Manilovka. But Zamanilovka does not stand hereabouts, nor ever has stood. So the travelers proceeded in search of Manilovka, and, after driving an additional two versts, arrived at a spot whence there branched off a by-road. Yet two, three, or four versts of the by-road had been covered before they saw the least sign of a two-storied stone mansion. Then it was that Chichikov suddenly recollected that, when a friend has invited one to visit his country house, and has said that the distance thereto is fifteen versts, the distance is sure to turn out to be at least thirty. Not many people would have admired the situation of Manilov's abode, for it stood on an isolated rise and was open to every wind that blew. On the slope of the rise lay closely mown turf, while disposed here and there, after the English fashion, were flower beds containing clumps of lilac and yellow acacia. Also, there were a few insignificant groups of slender-leaved, pointed-tipped birch trees which, under two of the latter, an arbor having a shabby green cupola, some blue painted wooden supports, and the inscription, This is the Temple of Solitary Thought. Lower down the slope lay a green-coated pond. Green-coated ponds constitute a frequent spectacle in the gardens of Russian landowners. And, lastly, from the foot of the declivity there stretched a line of moldy log-built huts which, for some obscure reason or another, our hero set himself to count. Up to two hundred or more did he count, but nowhere could he perceive a single leaf of vegetation or a single stick of timber. The only thing to greet the eye was the logs of which the huts were constructed. Nevertheless, the scene was to a certain extent enlivened by the spectacle of two peasant women who, with clothes picturesquely tucked up, were wading knee-deep in the pond and dragging behind them, with wooden handles, a ragged fishing net, in the meshes of which two crawfish and a roach with glistening scales were entangled. The women appeared to have cause of dispute between themselves, to be raiding one another about something. In the background, and to one side of the house, showed a faint, dusky blur of pine wood, and even the weather was in keeping with the surroundings, since the day was neither clear nor dull, but of the grey tint which may be noted in uniforms of garrison soldiers which have seen long service. To complete the picture, a cock, the recognized harbinger of atmospheric mutations, was present, and, in spite of the fact that a certain connection with affairs of gallantry had led to his having had his head pecked bare by other cocks, he flapped a pair of wings, appendages as bare as two pieces of bast, and crowed loudly. As Chichikov approached the courtyard of the mansion, he caught sight of his host, clad in a green frock coat, standing on the veranda and pressing one hand to his eyes to shield them from the sun and to get a better view of the approaching carriage. In proportion, as the britchka drew nearer and nearer to the veranda, the host's eyes assumed a more and more delighted expression, and his smile a broader and broader sweep. "'Paul Ivanovich!' he exclaimed when at length Chichikov leapt from the vehicle. Never should I have believed that you would have remembered us. 
The two friends exchanged hearty embraces, and Manilov then conducted his guest to the drawing room. During the brief time that they are traversing the hall, the anteroom, and the dining room, let me try to say something concerning the master of the house. But such an undertaking bristles with difficulties. It promises to be a far less easy task than the depicting of some outstanding personality which calls but for a wholesale dashing of colors upon the canvas. The colors of a pair of dark burning eyes, a pair of dark beetling brows, a forehead seamed with wrinkles, a black or a fiery red cloak thrown backwards over the shoulder, and so forth and so forth. Yet so numerous are Russian surf owners that, though careful scrutiny reveals to one's sight a quantity of outre peculiarities, they are as a class exceedingly difficult to portray, and one needs to strain one's faculties to the utmost before it becomes possible to pick out their variously subtle, their almost invisible features. In short, one needs before doing this to carry out a prolonged probing with the aid of an insight sharpened in the acute school of research. Only God can say what Manilov's real character was. A class of men exists whom the proverb has described as men unto themselves, neither this nor that, neither Bogdan of the city nor Selifan of the village. And to that class, we had better assign also Manilov. Outwardly he was presentable enough, for his features were not wanting in amiability, but that amiability was a quality into which there entered too much of the sugary element, so that his every gesture, his every attitude seemed to connote an excess of eagerness to curry favor and cultivate a closer acquaintance. On first speaking to the man, his ingratiating smile, his flaxen hair, and his blue eyes would lead one to say, what a pleasant, good-tempered fellow he seems. Yet during the next moment or two, one would feel inclined to say nothing at all, and during the third moment only to say, the devil alone knows what he is. And should, thereafter, one not hasten to depart, one would inevitably become overpowered with the deadly sense of ennui, which comes of the intuition that nothing in the least interesting is to be looked for but only a series of wearisome utterances of the kind which are apt to fall from the lips of a man whose hobby has once been touched upon. For every man has his hobby. One man's may be sporting dogs, another man's may be that of believing himself to be a lover of music, and able to sound the art to its inmost depths. Another's may be that of posing as a connoisseur of recherche cookery. Another's may be that of aspiring to play roles of a kind higher than nature has assigned him. Another's, though this is a more limited ambition, may be that of getting drunk, and of dreaming that he is edifying both his friends, his acquaintances, and people with whom he has no connection at all by walking arm in arm with an imperial aide-de-camp. Another's may be that of possessing a hand able to chip corners off aces and deuces of diamonds, Another's may be that of yearning to set things straight, in other words, to approximate his personality to that of a station master or a director of posts. In short, almost every man has his hobby or his leaning, yet Manilov had none such, for at home he spoke little and spent the greater part of his time in meditation, though God only knows what that meditation comprised. 
nor can it be said that he took much interest in the management of his estate, for he never rode into the country, and the estate practically managed itself. Whether the bailiff said to him, it might be well to have such and such a thing done, he would reply, yes, that is not a bad idea, and then go on smoking his pipe, a habit which he had acquired during his service in the army where he had been looked upon as an officer of modesty, delicacy, and refinement. Yes, it is not a bad idea, he would repeat. Again, whenever a peasant approached him, and, rubbing the back of his neck, said, Baron, may I have leave to go and work for myself in order that I may earn my obrock? Note 2. He would snap out with pipe in mouth, as usual. Yes, go! and never trouble his head as to whether the peasant's real object might not be to go and get drunk. True, at intervals, he would say, while gazing from the veranda to the courtyard, and from the courtyard to the pond, that it would be indeed splendid if a carriage drive could suddenly materialize, and the pond as suddenly become spanned with a stone bridge, and little shops as suddenly arise whence peddlers could dispense the petty merchandise of the kind which peasantry most need. And at such moments his eyes would grow winning, and his features assume an expression of intense satisfaction. Yet never did these projects pass beyond the stage of debate. Likewise there lay in his study a book, with the fourteenth page permanently turned down. It was a book which he had been reading for the past two years. In general, something seemed to be wanting in the establishment. For instance, although the drawing room was filled with beautiful furniture and upholstered in some fine silken material which clearly had cost no inconsiderable sum, two of the chairs lacked any covering but bast, and for some years past the master had been accustomed to warn his guest with the words, do not sit upon these chairs, they are not yet ready for use. Another room contained no furniture at all, although, a few days after the marriage, it had been said, My dear, tomorrow let us set about procuring at least some temporary furniture for this room. Also, every evening would see placed upon the drawing room table a fine bronze candelabrum, a statuette representative of the three graces a tray inlaid with mother-of-pearl, and a rickety, lopsided copper invalide. Yet of the fact that all four articles were thickly coated with grease, neither the master of the house nor the mistress nor the servants seemed to entertain the least suspicion. At the same time, Manilov and his wife were quite satisfied with each other. More than eight years had elapsed since their marriage yet one of them was forever offering his or her partner a piece of apple or a bonbon or a nut while murmuring some tender something which voiced a whole-hearted affection open your mouth dearest thus ran the formula and let me pop into it this titbit you may be sure that on such occasion the dearest mouth parted its lips most graciously for their mutual birthdays, the pair always contrived some surprise present in the shape of a glass receptacle for tooth powder or what not. And as they sat together on the sofa, he would suddenly, and for some unknown reason, lay aside his pipe and she her work, if at the moment she happened to be holding it in her hands, 
and husband and wife would imprint upon one another's cheeks such a prolonged and languishing kiss that during its continuance you could have smoked a full cigar. In short, they were what is known as a very happy couple. Yet it may be remarked that a household requires other pursuits to be engaged in than lengthy embracings and the preparing of cunning surprises. Yes, many a function calls for fulfillment. For instance, why should it be thought foolish or low to superintend the kitchen? Why should care not be taken that the storeroom never lacks supplies? Why should a housekeeper be allowed to thieve? Why should slovenly and drunken servants exist? Why should a domestic staff be suffered and indulge in bouts of unconscionable debauchery during its leisure time? Yet none of these things were thought worthy of consideration by Manilov's wife, for she had been gently brought up, and gentle nurture, as we all know, is to be acquired only in boarding schools, and boarding schools, as we know, hold the three principal subjects which constitute the basis of human virtue to be the French language, a thing indispensable to the happiness of married life. Piano playing, a thing wherewith to beguile a husband's leisure moments, and that particular department of housewifery which is comprised in the knitting of purses and other surprises. Nevertheless, changes and improvements have begun to take place, since things now are governed more by the personal inclinations and idiosyncrasies of the keepers of such establishments. For instance, in some seminaries the regimen places piano playing first and the French language second, and then the above department of housewifery, while in other seminaries the knitting of surprises heads the list, and then the French language, and then the playing of pianos. So diverse are the systems in force. Nonetheless, I may remark that Madame Manilov. Note 2. An annual tax upon peasants, payment of which secured to the payer the right of removal. End note two. But let me confess that I always shrink from saying too much about ladies. Moreover, it is time that we return to our heroes, who, during the past few minutes, have been standing in front of the drawing-room door and engaged in urging one another to enter first. End of part one, chapter two, section one. Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol Translated by D.J. Hogarth Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 1 Meanwhile, Chichikov, seated in his britchka and bowling along the turnpike, was feeling greatly pleased with himself. From the preceding chapter, the reader will have gathered the principal subject of his bent and inclinations, wherefore it is no matter for wonder that his body and his soul had ended by becoming wholly immersed therein. To all appearances, the thoughts, the calculations, and the projects which were now reflected in his face partook of a pleasant nature, since momentarily they kept leaving behind them a satisfied smile. Indeed, so engrossed was he, that he never noticed that his coachman, elated with the hospitality of Manilov's domestics, was making remarks of a didactic nature to the off-horse of the troika, a skewbald. 
this skewbald was a knowing animal, and made only a show of pulling, whereas its comrades, the middle horse, a bay, and known as the assessor, owing to his having been acquired from a gentleman of that rank, and the near horse, a roan, would do their work gallantly, and even evince in their eyes the pleasure which they derived from their exertions. "'Ah, you rascal, you rascal! I'll get the better of you!' ejaculated Selifan, as he sat up and gave the lazy one a cut with his whip. "'You know your business all right, you German pantaloon. The bay is a good fellow, and does his duty, and I'll give him a bit over his feed, for he is a horse to be respected. And the assessor, too, is a good horse. But what are you shaking your ears for?' "'You are a fool, so just mind when you're spoken to. "'Tis good advice I'm giving you, you blockhead. "'Ah, oh, you can travel when you like.' "'And he gave the animal another cut, "'and then shouted to the trio, "'Gee up, my beauties!' "'and drew his whip gently across the backs "'of the skewball's comrades, "'not as a punishment, but as a sign of his approval. "'That done, he addressed himself to the skewball again.' "'Do you think,' he cried, "'that I don't see what you're doing? "'You can behave quite decently when you like "'and make a man respect you.' "'With that he fell to recalling certain reminiscences. "'They were nice folk, those folk at the gentleman's yonder,' he mused. "'I do love a chat with a man when he is a good sort. "'With a man of that kind I'm always hail fellow well met "'and glad to drink a glass of tea with him or to eat a biscuit.' "'One can't help respecting a decent fellow. "'For instance, this gentleman, why, everyone looks up to him, "'for he has been in the government service "'and is a collegiate counsellor. "'Thus soliloquising, he passed to more remote abstractions, "'until, had Chichikov been listening, "'he would have learnt a number of interesting details concerning himself. "'However, his thoughts were wholly occupied with his own subject.' so much so that not until a loud clap of thunder awoke him from his reverie did he glance around him the sky was completely covered with clouds and the dusty turnpike beginning to be sprinkled with drops of rain at length a second and a nearer and a louder peal resounded and the rain descended as from a bucket falling slantwise it beat upon one side of the basket-work of the tilt until the splashings began to spurt into his face and he found himself forced to draw the curtains, fitted with circular openings, through which to obtain a glimpse of the wayside view, and to shout to Selifan to quicken his pace. Upon that the coachman, interrupted in the middle of his harangue, bethought him that no time was to be lost, wherefore, extracting from under the box-seat a piece of old blanket, he covered over his sleeves, resumed the reins, and cheered on his threefold team, which, it may be said, had so completely succumbed to the influence of the pleasant lassitude induced by Selifan's discourse, that it had taken to scarcely placing one leg before the other. Unfortunately, Selifan could not clearly remember whether two turnings had been passed or three. Indeed, on collecting his faculties, and dimly recalling the lie of the road, he became filled with a shrewd suspicion that a very large number of turnings had been passed. But since, at moments which call for a hasty decision, a Russian is quick to discover what may conceivably be the best course to take, our coachman put away from him all ulterior reasoning, and turning to the right at the next crossroad, shouted, "'Aye, my beauties!' and set off at a gallop. 
Never for a moment did he stop to think whither the road might lead him. It was long before the clouds had discharged their burden, and meanwhile the dust on the road became kneaded into mire, and the horse's task of pulling the britchka heavier and heavier. Also Chichikov had taken alarm at his continued failure to catch sight of Sobakovitch's country house. According to his calculations, it ought to have been reached long ago. He gazed about him on every side, but the darkness was too dense for the eye to pierce. Serifan, he exclaimed, leaning forward in the britchka. What is it, Barin? replied the coachman. Can you see the country house anywhere? No, Barin. After which, with a flourish of the whip, the man broke into a sort of endless drawling song. In that song, everything had a place. By everything, I mean both the various encouraging and stimulating cries with which Russian folk urge on their horses, and a random, unpremeditated selection of adjectives. Meanwhile, Chichikov began to notice that the britchka was swaying violently and dealing him occasional bumps. Consequently, he suspected that it had left the road and was being dragged over a ploughed field. Upon Selifan's mind there appeared to have dawned a similar inkling, for he had ceased to hold forth. "'You rascal, what road are you following?' inquired Chichikov. "'I don't know,' retorted the coachman. "'What could a man do at a time of night when the darkness won't let him even see his whip?' And as Selifan spoke, the vehicle tilted to an angle which left Chichikov no choice but to hang on with hands and teeth. At length he realised the fact that Selifan was drunk. "'Stop, stop, or you'll upset us!' he shouted to the fellow. "'No, no, Barine,' replied Selifan. "'How could I upset you? To upset people is wrong. I know that very well, and should never dream of such conduct.' Here he started to turn the vehicle round a little, and kept on doing so until the britchka capsized onto its side, and Chichikov landed in the mud on his hands and knees. Fortunately, Stelifan succeeded in stopping the horses, although they would have stopped of themselves, seeing that they were utterly worn out. This unforeseen catastrophe evidently astonished their driver. Slipping from the box, he stood resting his hands against the side of the britchka, while Chichikov tumbled and floundered about in the mud, in a vain endeavour to wriggle clear of the stuff. "'Ah, oh, you!' said Selifan meditatively to the britchka. "'To think of upsetting us like this!' "'You're as drunk as a lord!' exclaimed Chichikov. "'No, no, Badin. Drunk, indeed. Why, I know my manners too well. A word or two with a friend. That is all I've taken. Anyone may talk with a decent man when he meets him.' "'There's nothing wrong in that. "'Also we had a snack together. "'There's nothing wrong in a snack, "'especially a snack with a decent man.' "'What did I say to you when last you got drunk?' "'asked Chichikov. "'Have you forgotten what I said then?' "'No, no, Barine, how could I forget it? "'I know what is what, "'and I know that it is not right to get drunk. "'All that I've been having is a word or two with a decent man, "'for the reason that... "'Well, if I lay the whip about you, "'you will know then how to talk to a decent fellow, I'll warrant.' "'As you please, Barine,' replied the complacent Selifan. "'Should you whip me, you will whip me, "'and I shall have nothing to complain of. "'Why should you not whip me if I deserve it? "'Tis for you to do as you like. 
Whippings are necessary sometimes, for a peasant often plays the fool, and discipline ought to be maintained. If I have deserved it, beat me. Why should you not? This reasoning seemed at the moment irrefutable, and Chichikov said nothing more. Fortunately, fate had decided to take pity on the pair, for from afar their ears caught the barking of a dog. Plucking up courage, Chichikov gave orders for the britchka to be righted and the horses to be urged forward. And since a Russian driver has at least this merit, that, owing to a keen sense of smell being able to take the place of eyesight, he can, if necessary, drive at random, and yet reach a destination of some sort, Selifan succeeded, though powerless to discern a single object, in directing his steeds to a country house nearby, and that with such a certainty of instinct, that it was not until the shafts had collided with a garden wall, and thereby made it clear that to proceed another pace was impossible, that he stopped. All that Chichikov could discern through the thick veil of pouring rain was something which resembled a veranda. So he dispatched Selifan to search for the entrance gates, and that process would have lasted indefinitely, had it not been shortened by the circumstance that, in Russia, the place of a Swiss footman is frequently taken by watchdogs, of which animals a number now proclaimed the traveller's presence so loudly that Chichikov found himself forced to stop his ears. Next a light gleamed in one of the windows, and filtered in a thin stream to the garden wall, thus revealing the whereabouts of the entrance gates, whereupon Selifan fell to knocking at the gates, until the bolts of the house-door were withdrawn, and there issued therefrom a figure clad in a rough cloak. "'Who is that knocking? What have you come for?' shouted the hoarse voice of an elderly woman. "'We are travellers, good mother,' said Chichikov. "'Pray allow us to spend the night here.' "'Out upon you for a pair of gadabouts,' retorted the old woman. "'A fine time of night to be arriving. "'We don't keep an hotel, mind you. "'This is a lady's residence.' "'But what are we to do, mother? "'We have lost our way and cannot spend the night out of doors in such weather.' "'No, we cannot. The night is dark and cold,' added Selifan. "'Hold your tongue, you fool!' exclaimed Chichikov. "'Who are you, then?' inquired the old woman. "'A dvorianin, good mother.' Somehow the word dvorianin seemed to give the old woman food for thought. "'Wait a moment,' she said. "'and I'll tell the mistress.' Two minutes later, she returned with a lantern in her hand. The gates were opened, and a light glimmered in a second window. Entering the courtyard, the britchka halted before a moderate-sized mansion. The darkness did not permit a very accurate observation being made, but, apparently, the windows only of one half of the building were illuminated, while a quagmire in front of the door reflected the beams from the same. Meanwhile the rain continued to beat sonorously down upon the wooden roof, and could be heard trickling into a water-butt. Nor for a single moment did the dogs cease to bark with all the strength of their lungs. One of them, throwing up its head, kept venting a howl of such energy and duration, that the animal seemed to be howling for a handsome wager, while another, cutting in between the yelpings of the first animal, kept restlessly reiterating, like a postman's bell, the notes of a very young puppy. Finally, an old hound, which appeared to be gifted with a peculiarly robust temperament, 
kept supplying the part of contrabasso, so that his growls resemble the rumbling of a bass singer when a chorus is in full cry and the tenors are rising on tiptoe in their efforts to compass a particularly high note and the whole body of choristers are wagging their heads before approaching a climax and this contrabasso alone is tucking his bearded chin into his collar and sinking almost to a squatting posture on the floor in order to produce a note which shall cause the windows to shiver and their panes to crack. Naturally, from a canine chorus of such executants, it might reasonably be inferred that the establishment was one of the utmost respectability. To that, however, our damp, cold hero gave not a thought, for all his mind was fixed upon bed. Indeed, the britchka had hardly come to a standstill before he leapt out upon the doorstep, missed his footing, and came within an ace of falling. To meet him there issued a female, younger than the first, but very closely resembling her, and on his being conducted to the parlour, a couple of glances showed him that the room was hung with old striped curtains, and ornamented with pictures of birds and small antique mirrors the latter set in dark frames which were carved to resemble scrolls of foliage. Behind each mirror was stuck either a letter or an old pack of cards or a stocking, while on the wall hung a clock with a flowered dial. More, however, Chichikov could not discern, for his eyelids were as heavy as though smeared with treacle. Presently the lady of the house herself entered, an elderly woman in a sort of nightcap, hastily put on, and a flannel neck-wrap. She belonged to that class of lady landowners, who are for ever lamenting failures of the harvest and their losses thereby, to the class who, drooping their heads despondently, are all the while stuffing money into striped purses, which they keep hoarded in the drawers of cupboards. Into one purse they will stuff rouble pieces, into another half-roubles, and into a third tchetvyetchki, although from their mean you would suppose that the cupboard contained only linen and nightshirts and skeins of wool and the piece of shabby material which is destined, should the old gown become scorched during the baking of holiday cakes and other dainties, or should it fall into pieces of itself, to become converted into a new dress. But the gown never does get burnt or wear out, for the reason that the lady is too careful, wherefore the piece of shabby material reposes in its unmade-up condition until the priest advises that it be given to the niece of some widowed sister, together with a quantity of other such rubbish. Chichikov apologised for having disturbed the household with his unexpected arrival. "'Not at all, not at all,' replied the lady. "'But in what dreadful weather God has brought you hither! "'What wind and what rain!' you could not help losing your way. Pray excuse us for being unable to make better preparations for you at this time of night. Suddenly there broke in upon the hostess's word the sound of a strange hissing, a sound so loud that the guests started in alarm, and the more so, seeing that it increased until the room seemed filled with adders. On glancing upwards, however, he recovered his composure, for he perceived the sound to be emanating from the clock, which appeared to be in a mind to strike. To the hissing sound there succeeded a wheezing one, until, putting forth its best efforts, the thing struck two with as much clatter as though someone had been hitting an iron pot with a cudgel. 
That done, the pendulum returned to its right left, right left oscillation. Chichikov thanked his hostess kindly, and said that he needed nothing, and she must not put herself about. Only for rest was he longing, though also he should like to know whither he had arrived, and whether the distance to the country house of landowner Sobakovitch was anything very great. To this the lady replied that she had never so much as heard the name, since no gentleman of the name resided in the locality. "'But at least you are acquainted with landowner Manilov,' continued Chichikov. "'No. Who is he?' "'Another landed proprietor, madam. "'Well, neither have I heard of him. "'No such landowner lives hereabouts. "'Then who are your local landowners?' "'Bobrov, Svinin, Kanapatyev, Khapakin, Trepakin, and Pleshakov. "'Are they rich men?' "'No, none of them.' One of them may own twenty souls, and another thirty, but of gentry who own a hundred, there are none. Chichikov reflected that he had indeed fallen into an aristocratic wilderness. At all events, is the town far away? he inquired. About sixty versts. How sorry I am that I have nothing for you to eat. Should you care to drink some tea? I thank you, good mother, but I require nothing beyond a bed. "'Well, after such a journey, you must indeed be needing rest, "'so you shall lie upon this sofa. "'Fatinya, bring a quilt and some pillows and sheets. "'What weather God has sent us, and what dreadful thunder! "'Ever since sunset I have had a candle burning before the icon in my bedroom. "'My God, why, your back and sides are as muddy as a boar's. "'However have you managed to get into such a state?' That I am nothing worse than muddy is indeed fortunate, since, but for the Almighty, I should have had my ribs broken. Dear, dear, to think of all that you must have been through. Had I not better wipe your back? I thank you, I thank you, but you need not trouble. Merely be so good as to tell your maid to dry my clothes. Do you hear that, Fatinya? said the hostess turning to a woman who is engaged in dragging in a feather bed and deluging the room with feathers. Take this coat and this vest, and after drying them before the fire, just as we used to do for your late master, give them a good rub and fold them up neatly. Very well, mistress, said Fatinya, spreading some sheets over the bed and arranging the pillows. Now your bed is ready for you, said the hostess to Chichikov. Good night, dear sir. I wish you good night. Is there anything else that you require? Perhaps you would like to have your heels tickled before retiring to rest. Never could my late husband get to sleep without that having been done. But the guest declined the proffered heel tickling, and, on his hostess taking her departure, hastened to divest himself of his clothing, both upper and under, and to hand the garments to Fatinya. She wished him good night and removed the wet trappings after which he found himself alone. Not without satisfaction did he eye his bed, which reached almost to the ceiling. Clearly, Fatinia was a past mistress in the art of beating up such a couch, and, as the result, he had no sooner mounted it with the aid of a chair than it sank well nigh to the floor, and the feathers, squeezed out of their proper confines, flew hither and thither into every corner of the apartment. Nevertheless, he extinguished the candle, covered himself over with the chintz quilt, snuggled down beneath it, and instantly fell asleep. 
Next day it was late in the morning before he awoke. Through the window the sun was shining into his eyes, and the flies, which overnight had been roosting quietly on the walls and ceiling, now turned their attention to the visitor. One settled on his lip, another on his ear, a third hovered as though intending to lodge in his very eye, and a fourth had the temerity to alight just under his nostrils. In his drowsy condition he inhaled the latter insect, sneezed violently, and so returned to consciousness. He glanced around the room and perceived that not all the pictures were representative of birds, since among them hung also a portrait of Kutuzov, and an oil painting of an old man in a uniform with red facings, such as were worn in the days of the Emperor Paul. At this moment the clock uttered its usual hissing sound, and struck ten, while a woman's face peered in at the door, but at once withdrew, for the reason that, with the object of sleeping as well as possible, Chichikov had removed every stitch of his clothing. Somehow the face seemed to him familiar, and he set himself to recall whose it could be. At length he recollected that it was the face of his hostess. His clothes he found lying clean and dry beside him, so he dressed and approached the mirror, meanwhile sneezing again with such vehemence that a cock which happened at the moment to be near the window, which was situated at no great distance from the ground, chuckled a short, sharp phrase. Probably it meant, in the bird's alien tongue, "'Good morning to you!' Chichikov retorted by calling the bird a fool, and then himself approached the window to look at the view. It appeared to comprise a poulterer's premises. At all events, the narrow yard in front of the window was full of poultry and other domestic creatures, of game-fowls and barn-door-fowls, with, among them, a cock which strutted with measured gait, and kept shaking its comb, and tilting its head as though it were trying to listen to something. Also a sow and her family were helping to grace the scene. First she rooted among a heap of litter, then, in passing, she ate up a young pullet. Lastly, she proceeded carelessly to munch some pieces of melon rind. To this small yard, or poultry run, a length of planking served as a fence, while beyond it lay a kitchen garden containing cabbages, onions, potatoes, beetroots, and other household vegetables. Also the garden contained a few stray fruit trees that were covered with netting to protect them from the magpies and sparrows, flocks of which were even then wheeling and darting from one spot to another. For the same reason, a number of scarecrows with outstretched arms stood reared on long poles, with, surmounting one of the figures, a cast-off cap of the hostesses. Beyond the garden again, there stood a number of peasants' huts. Though scattered, instead of being arranged in regular rows, these appeared to Chichikov's eye to comprise well-to-do inhabitants, since all the rotten planks in their roofing had been replaced with new ones, and none of their doors were askew, and such of their tilt-sheds as faced him evinced evidence of a presence of a spare wagon, in some cases almost a new one. "'This lady owns by no means a poor village,' said Chichikov to himself, wherefore he decided then and there to have a talk with his hostess, and to cultivate her closer acquaintance. Accordingly, he peeped through the chink of the door, whence her head had recently protruded, and seeing her seated at a tea-table, entered and greeted her with a cheerful, kindly smile. "'Good morning, dear sir,' 
she responded as she rose. "'How have you slept?' "'She was dressed in better style than she had been on the previous evening. "'That is to say, she was now wearing a gown of some dark colour, "'and lacked her nightcap, and had swathed her neck in something stiff. "'I have slept exceedingly well,' replied Chichikov, seating himself upon a chair. "'And how are you, good madam?' "'But poorly, my dear sir.' "'And why so?' "'Because I cannot sleep. "'A pain has taken me in my middle, "'and my legs from the ankles upwards "'are aching as though they were broken. "'That will pass, that will pass, good mother. "'You must pay no attention to it.' "'God grant that it may pass. "'However, I've been rubbing myself with lard and turpentine. "'What sort of tea will you take? "'In this jar I have some of the scented kind.' "'Excellent, good mother. Then I will take that.' Probably the reader will have noticed that for all his expressions of solicitude, Chichikov's tone towards his hostess partook of a freer, a more unceremonious nature than that which he had adopted towards Madame Manilov. And here I should like to assert that howsoever much, in certain respects, we Russians may be surpassed by foreigners, at least we surpass them in adroitness of manner.' In fact, the various shades and subtleties of our social intercourse defy enumeration. A Frenchman or a German would be incapable of envisaging and understanding all its peculiarities and differences, for his tone in speaking to a millionaire differs but little from that which he employs towards a small tobacconist, and that in spite of the circumstance that he is accustomed to cringe before the former. With us, however, things are different. In Russian society there exist clever folk who can speak in one manner to a landowner possessed of two hundred peasant souls, and in another to a landowner possessed of three hundred, and in another to a landowner possessed of five hundred. In short, up to the number of a million souls, the Russian will have ready for each landowner a suitable mode of address. For example, suppose that somewhere there exists a government office and that in that office there exists a director. I would beg of you to contemplate him as he sits among his myrmidons. Sheer nervousness will prevent you from uttering a word in his presence, so great are the pride and superiority depicted on his countenance. Also, were you to sketch him, you would be sketching a veritable Prometheus, for his glance is as that of an eagle, and he walks with measured, stately stride. Yet no sooner will the eagle have left the room to seek the study of his superior officer than he will go scurrying along, papers held close to his nose, like any partridge. But in society, and at the evening party, should the rest of those present be of lesser rank than himself, the Prometheus will once more become Prometheus, and the man who stands a step below him will treat him in a way never dreamt of by Ovid, seeing that each fly is of lesser account than its superior fly, and becomes, in the presence of the latter, even as a grain of sand. Surely that is not Ivan Petrovitch, you will say, of such and such a man, as you regard him. Ivan Petrovitch is tall, whereas this man is small and spare. Ivan Petrovitch has a loud, deep voice, and never smiles, whereas this man, whoever he may be, is twittering like a sparrow, and smiling all the time. Yet approach, and take a good look at the fellow, and you will see that it is Ivan Petrovitch. 
Alack, alack, will be the only remark you can make. End of part one, chapter three, section one.